0: We are right now in the middle of the book of Esther. I want to spend a moment or two catching up with what has happened so far. Our story is set at the centre of the greatest empire the world had known to this time, the nation of Persia. And if I can picture what has happened before you as a, a drama, Well, in Act 1, Scene 1, we find King Ahasuerus, who, even though he's rather young and impetuous, rules over most of the known world. And he throws a party, the party of all parties, lasting for six months, at the end of which he commands Queen Vashti to come and display her royal beauty before his drunken guests. But she refuses. And in response, she is taken from her position, and another is sought to fill her place. And it just so happens that events conspire to bring a young Jewish woman who lives under the care of her cousin Mordecai to become the next queen. Her name is Esther. Act 1, Scene 2. It just so happens that Mordecai is responsible for the saving of the king's life when he uncovers a plot to assassinate Ahasuerus. But while careful note is taken of this action, no reward is given. Instead, a man named Haman, a descendant of Agag, who was an infamous enemy of God's people, is given swift reward. Promotion to become second in the kingdom only to Ahasuerus himself. Act 1, scene 3. Everyone bows before Haman, recognising his position of influence. Everyone, that is, except for Mordecai. And his refusal to buy inflames Haman's anger. And so he hatches a plot to have Mordecai killed. But not just Mordecai. Hagar's anger is maniacal. He he desires to have all of Mordecai's kinsmen put to death. He wants the Jews in every part of the vast Persian Empire exterminated. And that's the point that Trevor brought us to last Sunday. And as we read this sort of story, this narrative in the Old Testament, it's important to remember that that they're written to give us, the reader, a, a benefit over those who are immersed in the story. We know more of what's going on than those who are actually living day to day out these events. We've seen this in our midweek study in the book of Job. Poor Job and his friends know nothing of the events that had unfolded in heavenly courts. And they must make their way through trying circumstances without such insight. And we know, as I mentioned a few Sundays ago, of the story that is behind the story. And while he is responsible for his own despicable choices, Haman is a pawn in Satan's hand. He's an instrument of the evil one in his attempt to thwart the fulfilment of the prophecy of Genesis 3. When he he attempts now to cut off the, the line that would see the child born who is destined to crush his head. Satan knows that if he can kill all the Jews, then he can cancel this judgment. And that's exactly what Haman intends to see happen here in our story. Having concluded last Sunday with the whole of the city of Susa in uproar at these unfolding events, we come now to what is Act 2, Act 2, Scene 1. And we read together again the words of Esther 4, verses 1 and 2. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate in sackcloth. I want to think with you for a few moments about the concept of good grief. One of the areas of collateral damage, if I can put it so crassly, left in the wake of this global pandemic is the physical, mental and spiritual harm that has been caused by the prohibitions placed upon funerals. Grieving people need to mourn. God's people need to mourn. The sting of death, our last great enemy, causes deep wounds and a process of grieving must be followed for such wounds to heal in the appropriate way. Even sustained by the hope that arises from faith in the one who is the resurrection and the life, God's people must grieve. We know how Jesus came and wept at the grave of his friend Lazarus, though moments later he would call him back to life. Grief is important, and we need to know how to grieve well. We need to experience good grief. And here in our text, we find that learning of the impending slaughter of his people, Mordecai grieves. He tears his clothes, he puts on sackcloth, and he covers himself in ashes. He laments. The book of Psalms is a great blessing to us for every season of life, but it's particularly helpful in the toughest of times. And this is because it's reckoned that two thirds of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. They are a crying out to God in times of desperation. And thus it is. We find them particularly helpful to us when we ourselves can't get the words to express how we feel in in troubled days. In his book, Adopted for Life, Russell Moore speaks of how, hoping to adopt a child, he travelled to an orphanage in Russia where the silence in the nursery was haunting. All the babies in their cots never cried. Not because they were incredibly content and didn't need anything, but rather because they had learned that no one cared enough to answer, so why bother to cry? It is only when children are confident of being loved that they cry, and they understand that when they cry, someone will respond to their weeping. God's people cry out to him in lament." Dr Glenn packham explains. A lament is an appeal to God based on confidence in his character. So when you know that God is good and loving, providing care and protection for his children, even as he is working out all things for his glory, when you are assured that he hears your cries, it is then that you raise a lament to him. The word prayer is not used here in this passage, but it's difficult to see how such lamenting, weeping and fasting could have been engaged in without prayers being directed to God. Mordecai laments. And by contrast to this appropriate practice of lament, we we see another of these foolish Persian laws mentioned here in verse 2. That no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. Why? Because the king would not permit any indication of sadness to be expressed in his presence. This is why in the book of Nehemiah, as cupbearer to the royal court, he was so terribly afraid when the king realised that he was displaying a sadness of heart. And that discovery, but for the grace of God, might well have cost Nehemiah his life. See Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 2. No one was allowed into the king's presence if they were unhappy foolishly. Persian kings and too many people within our 21st century world try to it themselves away from the sadness that surrounds them. Like brass monkeys, they want to hear no evil and see no evil, trying to remain untouched by the trials of living in a fallen world. But the aim of living in this world is not our feeling good, but our finding God. As Augustine said in my deepest wound, I saw your glory and it dazzled me. And our experience of grief becomes good grief when it turns our hearts to find comfort in the cross of Christ. Where from the worst of tragedies God brought the greatest of triumphs and out of death itself Life eternal. It is receiving the gift of faith that gives us confidence to say, with Paul in those beautiful words of Romans 8, verses 38 and 39 For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is no tragedy so great, no hurt so deep that it can sever God's child from, experience, from experiencing his love to us in Christ. But let's move on. Haman's argument back in chapter 3 verse 8 that all the Jews should be done away with and the king ought not to tolerate them was supposed to be because they were not compliant with the king's commands. And yet here we see that although Mordecai refuses to bow before Haman, he's still willing to subject himself to the laws of Persia. He remains outside the king's gate while he is wearing Sackcloth And because he's outside the gate, this leads to a lot of toing and froing as Esther is brought up to speed with the impending plight of her people. And the whole matter is brought to a head when Mordecai says in the famous words of, of Esther four verse 14, "For if you keep silent at this time." Relief and deliverance will rise for the for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. The history of the children of Israel had proven repeatedly that God has come to the aid of his people whether in slavery, in Egypt, or in exile in Babylon. And such faith in the power of God to redeem his people has now infiltrated the heart of Mordecai. And he is certain that deliverance from this terrible threat that hangs over them is coming. He wasn't sure how it would come, he just knew that it would. In the cyclic history of the book of Judges, we see this pattern repeated over and over again. God's people sin. Consequently, they're oppressed by their enemies. They are moved to cry out to God. And he sends them a deliverer. This is repeated over and over again. And those who God raises up in answer to the cries of his people to lead them out of their oppression are the weirdest bunch. And they include the fearful Gideon and the womanizing Samson. And had now Esther, the beauty queen, been installed on the throne of Persia by God through this most unusual set of circumstances in order that she might be the means whereby the people would be rescued. Well, we know that she has. But that's for another Sunday. Here now in Act 2, Scene 1, Esther has to choose. She can hide away from the troubles of the world in the temporary sanctuary of the royal courts. Or she can choose to stand with God's people and face all that will come their way, be it good or bad. In a sense, she can decide to eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. Or she can choose to fast and pray for in God we might live. God's people in Persia, in this time of desperation, needed a mediator. They needed someone who was willing and able to plead their case before the king. And here we see that there's a, a significant transition. suddenly we see Esther becoming so very proactive. It is she who gives the commands. She sets out her plan and she displays her courage in her willingness, if necessary, to sacrifice her life for the sake of her people. Verse 11 then becomes a key verse in this unfolding drama. There we read, All the king's servants... And the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the scepter, the golden scepter, so that he may live. Just as no one was allowed to enter the king's presence if they were unhappy, so also no one was allowed to enter the king's presence if they were uninvited they needed the favor of the king this is a lovely golden thread that runs through the story of esther in the beginning esther won grace and favor with everyone and she was promoted to be queen now once again she must come before the king seeking his favor It may cost Esther her life but for the sake of her people to be the mediator they so desperately needed this is a price she is willing to pay. Psalm 24 verses 3 and 4 with which we began our service ask and answer the following question. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. Now we are prone to misinterpret this and to believe it to say to us that if we can but tidy up our lives a bit more, if we can wash our hands just a little bit more vigorously, then we can be among the number who can make such an approach. But that's nonsense. You've got to read on down the psalm. And there we find the command given in verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who can ascend this hill into God's holy presence? Only one. There's only one to whom the doors are flung open. And it's not an improved or tidied up version of me or you. It is the King of glory. He alone is entitled to ascend into the heavenly throne room. So what does that mean for us? How do we find favour in the courts of heaven? Well, it means that we have a mediator. As Hebrews 4 explains who is Jesus the Son of God one who was tempted and yet without sin one who has entered in to be our great high priest our mediator before God sympathizing with our weaknesses and so the writer sums it up Hebrews 4 16 saying let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help When in time of need, we are living in terribly trying days. We find ourselves in the middle of such a story and we really can't see the big picture. We don't really understand why so many bad things are happening around us. But there are things that we do know and there are things in which we can have confidence. We do know the heart of our great and good God. And the need of this hour is that we would cry out to him that he might deliver us. And we do know that we have a mediator whose perfect life means that sinners like you and me can find favour in the presence of the King of Heaven. In answer to a question from the disciples of John the baptiser, Jesus said in Matthew 9.15, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast. Feasting or fasting. That was the choice that faced Esther. And this is, for God's people, a fasting season, a time for lament and for fervent prayer. But we can live through these days with the glorious assurance that one day we will be in God's presence where we will feast with him forever. That will be a day without sorrow, a day without sickness, a day when grief will be gone and all fears will be swept aside. That is a place where even now our mediator makes intercession for us, assuring us of God's love, of God's care and God's answer to all our cry.